developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Billions of people have vision problems, and vision is more than 2020. Vision Beyond Sight will help you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Your vision does not define you. You define your vision. With Dr. Lin's new way to look at your life through a new lens, you will be ready to meet yourself and receive visualizations for miracles to come. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Hi, friends. This is Dr. Lynn, and welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Today, visiting with us is Jason Denon. Jason is truly an amazing person, as you'll quickly see his power, passion, success, and influencing abilities. Today, we're going to talk about Jason's mission. Jason is on a mission to inspire people by sharing a story of survival and to empower people to get through life's most difficult hardships by utilizing the lenses they have already learned throughout their lives, and by taking advantage of the strength strength that they already possess inside themselves. But let me tell you just a little bit about Jason here. He is an author, inspirational speaker, skydiver, mountain climber, triathlete, and explorer. He describes himself on most days as just being a regular kind of guy. He was born and raised in New Jersey, moved to Colorado to explore and test his limits in the wide open spaces of the West. He was in a skydiving accident that almost took his life. The doctor who performed emergency life-saving surgery on him stared at the comatose body day after his surgery in utter disbelief. The doctor told his family that he couldn't believe he survived all the traumatic injuries that he had incurred during the accidents. He said that no one survives what Jason survived. No one. Except here we are today with Jason so he could tell us the rest of the story, which ended up revealing to him a new purpose in his life. And he promised himself that he would share a story and what he learned to help others that are going through difficult hardships in their own lives. Welcome, Jason, to Vision Beyond Sight. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here, and you're in Boulder, one of my favorite places to uh, visit and hike and and be as as well. So let's kind of back up just a little bit and tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you experienced in your accident. Sure. So uh, I was an active skydiver, and I would do it just about every weekend, and I was on my third jump of the particular day. I was coming in for a landing. Everything was normal, and then I got about 150 feet off the ground. Huge wind comes off the mountains picks me up, slams me forward through a a cattle fence and into the side of an airplane hangar going about 30 miles an hour. So I hit that, um, hit the hangar and blacked out. Um, I was laying on the ground and the first people that came to me that were checking on on me, the other skydivers, um, (laughs) the first thing they they said to me, "Are, are, are you all right to try to check on my, my condition? And apparently in a blacked out state, I said, don't call anyone. I'll be okay. Just give me a minute. 
Uh, and I, I'm not sure why that came out of my mouth because I, I wasn't, I wasn't even, even, uh, you know, conscious, uh, or I, I, I inside, I wasn't conscious, but, um, it, I think it just, my body went to, um, instinct or default mode and into survival mode. And just, I wanted to get up. I wanted to, um, be okay. And I think my body, you know, when you go through injuries, um, you, you try to stand up as quickly as possible and assess your, you know, if you figure if you stand up quickly, uh, you're okay. So I think that's what my mind was going into, but, um, you know, I had massive injuries, uh, 20 broken bones and four organs had to be fixed. And, uh, luckily they didn't listen to me and they called the flight for life helicopter, um, you know, immediately. And I was flown to the nearest level one trauma center for emergency life-saving surgery. So, um, yeah, it was unexpected because it was just a normal day. And all of a sudden that wind occurrence happened. And, um, when you're that low to the ground, 150 feet off the ground, you can't turn uh, your parachute because the way your parachute turns is you pull a handle and your parachute dives towards the ground and that creates a turn. Um, but if you do that too close to the ground, you'll dive directly into the ground and you won't survive. Um, if you do the same maneuver at 2,000 feet, you're fine because if you lose 200 feet of altitude, well, you're still, you know, 1,800 feet off the ground if you started that at 2,000 feet. So um, <clears throat> when I got hit by the wind, I couldn't do anything other than take a deep breath and say, I'm not sure if I'm going to land, you know, before this fence on the grassy field that I've landed on hundreds of times before, or am I going to hit it? So, um, I just took a deep breath, relaxed, and said, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. And uh, unfortunately, I hit that building. Or fortunately, I guess, depending on how you look at it, because right. it changed my life for the best. So you remember the last few moments of seeing, knowing that you were going to hit it. And it's interesting that uh, as fast as you're going, it's like in slow motion in your mind, remembering those last uh, few seconds of the, the flight. Is that right? Yeah, you're kind of I would it, so from 150 feet to hitting the building is about a five second period, and uh, so you're counting it down and you're kind of like, well, I may make it, I may not make it, and then with, you know, about a second left, um, I said, there's no way I'm going to land before this fence. I'm, I have too much speed, and I'm gonna, I'm about to impact, and yeah. uh, and it's and that po at that point it was really quick. Once I hit the the fence, um, it came tight across my. Uh, my chest and my abdomen and snapped immediately because like a wire fence and then the airplane hangers about 10 feet behind it. So it was almost an immediate impact once I went through that fence. So flight for life came and continue on what happened from there. Yeah. So flight for life came, flew me, um, flew me to St. Anthony's, which is um, about 50 miles away um, for life-saving surgery. So what happened was well, I hit so hard on the left side of my body, 10 of my 12 ribs broke and impacted my heart. So my heart exploded out of where it normally sits on the left side in something called the pericardial sac and ended up on the right side of my chest. Um, so they had to go in, uh, open me up and put my heart back. Um, and the doctors would later tell my family that they had never performed that surgery on anyone before because they, no one ever makes it alive with that heart injury. Um, because I guess your heart just disconnects when it's on the you know, wrong side of your chest. Um, so, so the doctor was quite surprised that I, one, he said, I should have never made it off the field from the skydiving accident uh, to the helicopter or to the hospital alive um, because of those injuries. Um, he later said to one of my friends that we never see injuries like this in the hospital because 
people don't make it in alive with all the injuries that that I had. So um, yeah, they were quite surprised. Um, and then over the next eight days, so they put me into a coma to protect me from all my injuries. And after the the heart, they were unsure for the first three days um, that it worked because they didn't even bother c- completely closing up my chest cavity just in case they had to get in right away uh, for an emergency. So after about three days, they were, co- they were comfortable that it was uh, it worked, and they closed my chest up and started working on all my other injuries because um, my body was a mess. It basically exploded when I hit um, the building. So this metal metal airplane hanger. Um, so broken femur, broken pelvis, uh, elbow broken, wrist broken, 11 broken ribs, uh, L5 vertebrae was fractured, and then lungs were collapsed and spleen was lacerated, um, and then ruptured diaphragm and colon had to be put back into place. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a upper body injury, lower body injury. I was pretty much, uh, (laughs) everything was broken. So I couldn't, couldn't, I couldn't move for about 10 weeks. I just had to lay there. So what's really interesting with the devastating kind of injuries you had, uh, it doesn't sound like you had a concussion, a brain injury, facial head injuries. Is that correct? Well, I did have a concussion. I forgot to mention that, but, um, so, uh, but no, no spinal and no lasting, um, brain injury. So I was incredibly lucky with that. I'm not sure they, they could understand how that I didn't get that those injuries, um, with the impact, but, um, yeah, I was lucky because, um, when they said there that no brain injuries and no spinal injuries, it kind of was like, well, everything's pretty much fixable. Um, and I kind of find that found that out when I woke up from the coma. And one of the first things my dad said to me, he said, uh, he said, this is going to be just like training for one of your races because I did triathlons and long distance events and things like that. And, um, it took a whole lot of training every day to get to a point where you're fit enough to race. So early on in my mind, um, after he told me that, I was like, wow, all I have to do is keep training every day and I can, you know, get back to as close to my normal self as possible. Maybe not completely, but, um, all I had to do was work hard. So that was a a huge turning point when I woke up to hear that, that, you know, when you're, you wake up and you're in complete shock, um, because I blacked out when I hit that building. So I really didn't know what was wrong until I woke up from the coma. And over the next couple of days, they started telling me what was, what my injuries were. Yeah. Do you remember anything about what it was like living in the coma? Will you, I've had, I work with a lot of patients that have concussion and brain injuries and they've shared with me often it, while they're in a, a coma that often they're hearing conversations, remembering things. Do you recall anything about what it was like to be in the coma? Oh yeah, I have vivid memories of the coma. Um, so my brain was really active, and um, it was nightmare after nightmare after nightmare during that coma. And they all kind of had the same theme, where I was in terrible condition, I was hurt, and there were people with me, and they refused to help me, and they were leaving me for dead. And it kind of made me indirectly ask me the question: Did I really want to live through this? And was I ready for what's going to be on the other side in terms of recovery? Because I had no idea what my injuries were when I actually got hurt. So um, I was kind of tormented by all those dreams and nightmares um, of continually telling me that no one was going to help me. When in the reality is on the outside, everyone was helping me, putting me back together. But, um, you know, your mind takes you into to really dark places. Um, 
And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I'm not someone who you normally remembers nightmares or dreams, but uh, to this day, I can remember, you know, tens of hundreds of different dreams and exactly how they went and uh, how I had to push through them. That must have been a frightening time, having those nightmares, dreams, not not really being able to wake up from them or share with people or, you know, emotionally deal with those at that time. Yeah, and, and it's 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 almost like when you're in in your normal state when you have a nightmare or you and you wake up you can kind of shake it off and say well that was just a nightmare when you're when you and you're right when you can't wake up it almost becomes your reality because you right. don't have any other reality because you can't wake up from it um and just shake it off so um yeah it was kind of temptation um that i had to overcome if i wanted to live you know i suppose i could have just given up um, and that's, it would seem like those dreams were trying to make me do give up and say, no one wants to help you. No one cares. And I had to fight through that if I wanted to live. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's the start of the will that we'll get to here in a, in a little bit. Um, so let's, let's move forward to the recovery process. Explain what it was like for you, you know, both from the physical and the emotional perspective. Sure. I would say that the, the, the emotional is much harder than the physical, uh, although the physical was relatively brutal um, because so I wake up from the coma and there's about a 10 week period where I can't move anything because of my injuries. You can't put any weight on your legs or, or anything. So um, while I'm laying there, I, you really reassess your life um, and it takes away sort of your, your um, coping mechanisms. So if I was stressed or not feeling great about things, I'd go, you know, before the accident, I'd go out for a run or, I was jumping out of the airplane a couple times a weekend. And when it takes that away, it's like, you don't have any avoidance. You, you're, you're dealing with, you know, your life. And, and I never thought about really the great things that happen in life or the things I was proud of. I always thought about the things I wish I did better. And you're kind of just stuck in that bed 24 hours a day thinking about that. And, you know, I really got sucked in by working too many hours and, um, you know, not spending enough time with loved ones and family and friends and missing events and things like that. Not purposely, but sometimes you just get pulled in a direction you don't want. And it's little by little. And then you realize you get a couple of years down the line and go, man, where, how did I end up here? I'm not happy. And how do I resolve this? And really the accident was great for me because it gave me a kind of a, a time just to lay there and think where sometimes we're so distracted in life by all the things that happen every day, we don't oft sometimes sit down and think about our life and where it's taken us. So it's a hard, hard way to learn that lesson, isn't it? It is, but it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me. So I'm super grateful that it happened. Right. Um, but it, it was the hardest time in my, my, my life for sure, laying in that bed and going, well, how do I resolve this? And I was lucky enough to have a second chance to say, well, I have some other reason to be here other than you know, what I was doing before and working so many hours and, um, and I started finding a purpose, but so that was kind of the emotional side. And I felt tremendous guilt as well, because my family's there and I go, man, I'm the one who decided to jump out of that plane all those hundreds of times. I can't imagine what it must've felt like for my family to get that call from the hospital saying, you know, you better get here now. He might not live or what it must've been like when they walked in and saw me in the coma. Right. Um, so I felt tremendous guilt and that was an awful thing to deal with as well. But um, from a physical perspective, um, I mean, there was a ton of pain um, 
And, you know, in the early stages, they would move my arm just an inch or two. And I'm on the verge of passing out just from that small movement of my body. Um, so there were definitely ups and downs. And um, as, as, as time went on, I mean, and you get to move a little bit more, it's easy. But in those early stages, you really start to doubt yourself because you're like, well, if I, if they can't move my arm an inch and I'm on the verge of passing out, I mean, how am I going to get to the rest of my body? So it, it, it's hard because you're, you're sitting there and have nothing else to distract you. Um, and, and you're, and you're kind of doubting yourself and you have to get over that. Um, if you're ever going to, um, get back to yourself and, um, you have to find ways to make progress, even though you're laying in bed and all I could move is like my, my right wrist and my, uh, above my elbow, um, for a while. So, um, yeah, it was a tough time. So it was, uh, it was a long journey of about, you know, 11 months of rehab. So that is a long journey. And, you know, uh, when people are in rehab, uh, there's always a lot of OTs and PTs and physical kind of movement people to help you. But my question is, was there really anybody on the emotional, psychological uh, end to um, help you? And the reason I asked that, we just recently had a podcast with a Dr. Brittany Claiborne, who went through some very difficult health issues totally different than yours, but she talked about there just weren't the right people to help me address the emotional and the, you know, significant things that are coming out. You're, you're looking at your life every single day in a way you've never looked before. And, uh, you know, she ended up becoming a psychologist to help people in, in crisis like that. So, so did you receive that kind of support while you were in your rehab? It was the psychological counseling was, was, was lacking for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was in the hospital for three and a half months. There were about, I got two visits. Um, the first time when I was laying in that bed for those 10 weeks and I was kind of going downhill a little bit for a while and they, they could kind of see that. And they said, do you want to see the psychiatrist? I said, you know, okay. I thought maybe they'd give me coping skills or, you know, something. And uh, the psychiatrist comes in and sits down and, mm-hmm. And he asked me what I'm, you know, going through. And I told him the guilt and, you know, the doubt. And then he just starts listing off um, antidepressants. And I only knew them from, you know, commercials on TV, what they were uh, by name. And I said, well, why are you going to give me antidepressants? What's that going to do? And he, he said, oh, don't worry. It'll cut out your highs and lows. What do you think about taking them? So that conversation lasted about two minutes. And I told him to get out of my room and don't ever come back. Um, because I knew – uh, in order to to come back, I kind of had to hit bottom and discover that for myself. You're going to get highs and lows. You're, I mean, your body's destroyed. You're laying in bed. You're going to be a little depressed for sure. Um, but to me, he was just trying to t- take the easy way out in his own job and in trying to take me uh, to, to take the easy way out of just going, well, you know, I'm not going to feel highs and lows. I'll just kind of sit here and be docile. And I just wasn't okay with that. Um, I knew I was laying there for a reason. I had to deal with these mental things before I could get physically better. Um, so there was that visit that lasted two minutes. And then probably in the, in the last two or three weeks when I was in the rehab facility, someone came in for about two minutes and asked me how I was doing. And I kind of said, yeah, I'm fine. And didn't even identify themselves as a psychiatrist or psychologist, assuming they were, but they kind of just moved on and never came back again. So yeah, it was, 
And it, it was hard to see other people in the rehab hospital because I was so lucky my family was there um, a lot of the time. Um, but other people were from far, much, their families lived way further away and weren't able to be there on an everyday basis. And you could see they needed help and counseling. And, you know, you, you always wonder, even after you get out of the hospital, like whatever happened to those people, because you could see them, you know, going downhill mentally. And, you know, you just, you just felt terrible for them. You like, you tried to help them, but you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I can be there to talk to them, but uh, yeah, it was extremely lacking in the hospital. So that that's something uh, they need more of. Yeah, that's a big, a huge missing in rehab and recovery from not, you know, just the physical, but a lot of, uh, you know, other surgeries, other things. And, and thanks for bringing up the point of the importance of your family. Um, community is so important. And to see that you have community to fill in, really fill in gaps, just just the being with, being with you and, and uh, the company and the support I think that's so much part of healing that uh, you're right. Uh, not everybody gets to uh, have that opportunity. And, and you, when you have family around, you're very blessed. It's not family, friends, but just to have people around and community. Community can be very powerful in, in all kinds of uh, healing and situations. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah, um, so, uh, oh, can I add one, one other thing please. about the community? Yeah. So what, what I tell people is um, from a perspective of someone who was in the hospital for three and a half months, whenever, you know, somebody's family member or something's going through, I, I always tell them, I say, you know, go there. You may not feel like you're doing anything. That person might not even be completely conscious, but you don't know what they hear and you don't know how much uh, a difference you can make just by being there. Even though you don't think you, you're doing anything, uh, it's the means the world to the person that's in that hospital. So whenever you think, you know, you're visiting someone else in the hospital or reluctant to, um, the effect you have on them just by being there is tremendous. So, uh, when, so whenever you have a family member or friend in the hospital, visiting them is tremendously important. Thanks for bringing that up because I know a lot of people don't come because they don't know what to say. You know, they don't know what to do. They don't know uh, what the person would want. And, and it's as simple as just being there. Um, maybe holding their hand if they want, or just to be with. And that's thank you. That that's really a critical point for um, people to know. It's okay if you don't know what to say. Um, you know, just be there and ask. You know, inquiry. What can we do? Kind of things. So we're going to take a break here, just a um, a minute. And when we get back, uh, I really want to talk to Jason about how he, through all of this, eleven months of rehab. Uh, physical and emotional stress, how he ended up uh, finding a way to discover his new life purpose. And then we're going to talk about a lot of his lessons he's learned and what he's doing uh, currently. So hang on. We'll hear the rest of this uh, very inspiring story in just a few minutes. Dr. Lin will be right back after this.
Can your child see, really see, more than 2020? Does your child struggle in school, have trouble with tracking when reading, or resist writing? Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's award-winning book, See It, Say It, Do It, provides parents and teachers with specific tools and strategies in visualization and processing. Improve and empower your child's learning and performance in school, sports, and play. Get See It, Say It, Do It on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Vision Beyond Sight will help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Join Dr. Lynn each week for a new exciting episode, Vision Beyond Sight. Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's book, 50 Tips to Improve Your Sports Performance, has identified the top 50 ways for you to achieve excellent results in any sport activity, enhance eye-mind-body coordination skills, achieve the mental edge, prevent injuries. This book belongs in every athlete's or coach's sports bag. Get 50 tips to improve your sports performance on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Welcome back to Vision Beyond Sight. Here's Dr. Lynn. Hi, everyone. We're talking with Jason Denon, who's sharing his unbelievable story of of a skydiving accident. But the real story is about his recovery and and um, how he ended up turning all of this terrible negative pain, emotional stress, turning it into a, a new way to discover his life's purpose. So Jason, if you'll go ahead and pick up from uh, you're finally improving in your rehab and physically, emotionally coming back. Uh, you know, really, what were some of the turning points for you to discover your new life purpose? Yeah, so I was laying in that bed in that 10 week period. And, you know, I'm getting down, and I and I just kicked the psychiatrist out of, out of my room and tell him to get out. So that's when everything started to change. Cause I was kind of feeling sorry for myself. I was like, how am I ever going to come back from this? And I said, you're not the type of person to feel sorry for yourself. You need to figure out a way to start coming back. You might be laying in that bed and not be able to move, but you could find something to improve. So I'm laying in that bed the rest of the night. And those nights were really quiet. Um, and a lot of time to think. And the whole time I was kind of um, thinking like, 
I'm going to get better right away or, or all of a sudden it's like there was no way I was going to jump out of the bed and all of a sudden start walking. So I gave myself permission just to get a little bit better every day. And it kind of took a huge weight off my shoulders because I was like, well, I could find something um, to do every day to get myself a little bit better until I could start moving more of my body when those bones healed. Um, so that was a huge relief. And then I realized I started training my mind uh, for the journey ahead. And then all the pain I was dealing with, you know, they're more than happy to give you as much pain medication as you, as you want pretty much in, in the situation I was in. And I was like, I, I hated the pain medication because it kind of took your brain away from thinking about um, what you really were. I was supposed to be thinking about while I was laying there is, is, you know, discovering my purpose and why am I on this? Why did I survive this accident? And what am I going to do with that? So that same night I'm laying there and I start thinking about the story that everyone asked me about is the, the crash. And at this point, I probably have told the story 50 times because every time someone new comes in the hospital, it, as far as staff, they would ask about it. They would read my medical chart and, you know, come in and say, oh, I can't believe you're alive. Can you tell me what happened? And at first I thought they were just checking my brain to see if it worked. And then I realized it's probably more than that. And I kind of got tired of telling a story because it, it, it made me relive it over and over and over again. But that night I realized that the story wasn't a burden. It was really a gift because I started thinking about not how I felt about telling the story. I started thinking about how those other people interacted with me when I was telling the story because every time I told it and, you know, told them the, you know, the emotional things I was going through, the actual crash it really allowed them to open up about things they were going through in their lives. So it was kind of being vulnerable myself opened up communication or a way to connect to people in a way that I would have never been able to connect with before. And I was like, well, maybe the story is just kind of the entry into talking to other people about struggles they're going through. Um, it kind of pulls people in because it's a shocking story, but it's really more than that. The story, like I say, the story is not necessarily about the skydiving accident. It's about thinking about your life and things you maybe missed out on or things you didn't do as well as you wish you did. And, you know, talking about that myself, so someone else doesn't necessarily have to crash into a building, but they understand some of the lessons and some of the um, things that I went through and the regrets you feel when you, you're, you know, on the verge of not living. Um, so that day I said, well, all I have to do is tell the story and all these good things can come out of it. It's like, well, maybe that's all, that's what I should be doing. Um, and, and kind of the light bulb went off that night in the hospital. I still had a, a lot to figure out about it, but that was when the initial, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing in life is kind of came up. Yeah, that's really amazing. And, and being able to see that clearly, it's interesting. You talked about the light bulb once once the light came on and your vision was created, you don't have to know how and the details right now, but you had that image or that vision or whatever it was, and that that starts giving you something really to to live for and and create around. So that's just a beautiful beautiful transition for you. So so continue on as to after that, you know. How are you doing, and uh, how are you using this new life purpose since the accident? 
Yeah. Well, and, and I'll say that that kind of everything changes after that moment of, of purpose. I go, well, coming back from all these injuries isn't just about me. It's about what I could help if I come back from these injuries and come back from these long odds. Well, then that's a story that I can tell and help other people. So it became more than just coming back for me. It, came, it was coming back for all the people that I could potentially help. So um, down the line in terms of injuries, um, even a week, a-, a week after waking up from the coma, I- I'm a goal-oriented person. I said, well, ha- what do I consider coming back from this? And I thought, well, if I do a triathlon again, which I had done lots of triathlons um, earlier in my life, um, which means triathlon, swim, bike, and run racing, so it was a way to test my entire body. You couldn't hide your legs, your arms, or anything like that. So I kind of set that as something I needed to do. And um, also, it, it would kind of complete the story of the comeback. There, there was a, a definite uh, goal uh, to meet um, as part of the story. So I really worked towards that race. It was you know, from doctors doubting I would ever run again when I asked them when I was going to be able to run again. Um, and, you know, er, no one thought I was going to be able to do what I, you know, said I was going to do. And uh, little by little, I would just chip away every day towards that goal and, you know, went from barely walking to walking with crutches to then to a cane to walking without anything to, you know, eventually running a really ugly run, but it was a run. Um <laughs> And then that day came, um, I, I thought it was going to take at least two years, but um, what I realized along the journey, um, sometimes they would hide from me uh, what the predictions were, um, and I would just kind of go as fast as I could in terms of rehabilitation. And I always thought I was horrible at rehabilitation. I was going so slow, but the reality was I was going twice as fast as anyone could possibly predict it. So I was like, well, I'm not going to wait two years. How would I do this race in one year? Um, And I looked up a race and realized it happened one day short of the one-year anniversary of my accident. I was like, kind of got obsessed with that. I said, oh, they said I wasn't going to walk for six months. I walked in three. I wasn't going to go back to work for at least a year. I went back in seven months. Well, what happens if I could race in less than a year? And I kind of, I that year, day before the one-year anniversary came, and I raced in a triathlon and finished it. so from there, um, yeah, that was a good accomplishment goal, and uh, you know I went on what I call the I thank you tour uh, back to all the hospitals and all the people that had helped me, and and you know um, it was just a definite way to to say what what the results were. You know, so often people say, well, how are you feeling? And you know, it depends on the day, but there's no definitive way of saying what your recovery took you to. And now when they asked me, when I would go back and see all those people that helped me in the hospitals, I would say, you know, I finished a triathlon and I couldn't have done it without you, um, that person that helped me. Um, so it was, you know, a, if I could just stop you for a second there, what gratitude you're showing for others to see that. And, and I'm sure that doctors, therapists, your family are going like, are you out of your mind to do a triathlon after this? Tell our listeners just, you know, how long it took you, you know, what is the triathlon, how long you uh, bike, swim, and run, you know, just so they have some idea of the physicality uh, uh, that it takes anybody, much less somebody who's recovering from the kind of injury that uh, you experienced. Sure. There's different distances, but the one I chose was uh, a 0.9-mile swim, 
uh, 30-mile bike, and then a 6.2-mile run. Um, so it was, it was uh, far enough that it was definitely a challenge of, of me questioning, like, do I think I could actually do this? I wasn't quite sure, but that was sort of the, some of the appeal um, to be able to do it. And the end part was that 6.2-mile run, you know, and it was in my head that the doctor kept on, you know, told me, you're probably never going to run again. So that whole, once I get past the, this is because it starts with a swim, then it goes to bike and it runs last. And, you know, the voices in my head of that doctor saying, you may never run again. I was like, well, here's the day to show them that, uh, you know, I'm going to run the 6.2 miles without stopping. And I ran the whole thing without stopping. Um, so, um, so yeah, it was, and, and, and I think part of it was the, a desire to feel like I was back to myself in some ways. Now I was granted, I was much slower, but you know, there was no special rules. There was no special time cutoffs just because I was hurt because I was still in pretty rough condition. Um, when I was doing that race, I was definitely not back to, you know, where I am today. Um, but it was, it was to prove in the condition I was in that I could, you know, get it done. That's amazing. And, and again, for the listeners, um, I've seen miracles like that happen. Um, I had a triathlete. He was in his 70s that uh, was always winning because at that age bracket, there's very few people that participate. So if he could finish, he was always in the top couple uh, places. And he came to me because when he'd get out of the water, he was experiencing double vision. And he had a problem where his eyes were crossing. And normally, you know, especially at that age, the prognosis for improvement with vision therapy is kind of iffy, but he did what you did. He just put his work in vision therapy as part of his training like he would do for a triathlete. And most people would never practice that often, be that dedicated, be that consistent. Eight weeks after treatment, and normally we're in for six to nine months minimum, uh, he's back competing and his eyes really were improving. And all we could do is shake our heads because he, he could see beyond what we could see. And that will and that practice just gave him a uh, much better skill than we would ever anticipate. And so uh, for those of you who just can't believe that something like this could happen, it really does happen. But boy, it takes a lot of a lot of work, motivation, desire, and all the big words on your part to make that happen. So a big congrats to you. That's really amazing. Thanks. And I think one thing that oftentimes happens is people, when they hear possible bad news or predictions or things like that from maybe doctors or family or whatever, that you can't, someone's prediction doesn't mean that's the end result, going to be the end result. That's just based on, you know, a large sample of people that maybe a doctor sees over a year or their whole career. Um, you have to really trust the process, have faith in the process you're going through. And if you don't actually go through it, and, you know, give your absolute, you know, maximal effort and attention to it, well, then whatever they predict may be what the, what the end result will be. Um, I always, when I going through the process, didn't believe the doctor's prognosis or, you know, maybe that was stubbornness or I didn't want that to be the end result. But if I listened to what they predicted, well, then I would be in a much different place than I am today. Um, I thought, I'm going to do everything I can to make this what I want it to be. And there's no way I could tell what the result will be unless I give everything I have to this recovery. Yeah. Wonderful point. And in our last four or five minutes, what I'd love Jason is for you to really 
we view the big lessons that you've learned through this. You've talked about them through your story, but but I think the you know they may seem like little pieces, but you have some very important big lessons on you know how courage plays a role and what you've learned out of that. Sure. Well, kind of just playing on what we just talked about is never accept limits other people try to place on you. Um, right. Because that's just their prediction. That doesn't mean it's going to be real. And and you have to take control of your situation yourself and um, find every way you can do because you're you're the ultimate person or the beneficiary of the recovery. So you care the most about it. You can't listen to other people's negative points or, or use their negativity to 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 boost your ability to come back from it. Um, every day you want to find some way to make a small improvement. Um, Cause I was laying in that bed. There wasn't a lot I could do, but then I said, well, I could train myself mentally or I could train uh, myself to deal with pain. Um, and that was going to create um, momentum to allow me to continue that progress when I was able to use the rest of my body. So it's amazing if you just try to find some small improvement every day in 30 or 60 or 90 days, you'll see what a huge difference it is if you make the commitment just to figure out something to do each day to make yourself better. That's great. Uh, test yourself often. Um, there was, once I got from home from the hospital and I was not able to walk very well, but I would test myself on a weekly basis as far as how far I can walk or how quickly I could walk. And over time, I would have a, a set distance to continually test myself. Now, you don't always go faster every time or some things you fail. And, but that's okay because you have to have the courage to be willing to fail if you're ever going to progress past where you are now. Um, and it just – you know where you're at. You can make adjustments to your rehabilitation or what you're doing. Um, but if you don't test yourself, you really have no idea where you are. Um, then building a strong foundation. Um, some of the amazing things that happened to me were I realized lots of things that I, that I did in my life prior to this accident was like I was training for something that I had no idea was ever going to happen. Um, so waking up from that coma, my dad said, you know, it's going to be just like training for one of your triathlons and it kind of connected and I, and I knew how to do that. And it wasn't the same as rehabilitation, but it was just about every day you need to go out and, follow a plan, do it as best you can. And over time, if you continue to follow that plan, it's going to make a difference. So it's kind of dedication to a purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, And then fear, um, you know, it can either protect you or it can hold you back. And (laughs) it's hard to sometimes determine which it's, it's trying to keep you safe or holding you back when you get into a more dangerous situation. But um, I mean, there was times I remember the first time they moved me from my bed to my um, uh, my wheelchair, and they're trying to tell me you have to slide your butt on this wood, shiny wood panel, and that's how you're going to get there. And I'm sitting there, you know, barely able to move, and I'm just like, if I fall on this ground, I'm going to re-break every single thing that they just fixed because it's not fully healed, and. Uh, I remember sitting there and kind of hanging there and not trusting it. And I said, well, I must not be the first person that ever did this. They must do this all the time. I was like, if I don't get to that wheelchair, I'm never going to progress. So I have to let go of that fear and say, this isn't protecting me. This is holding me back. If I refuse to get into that wheelchair, 
while sliding across this wood board. And uh, my family let go and slided across the wood board. And then, you know, everything started to change from that. And I never questioned it again, going back that transition from the bed to the board. So um, talk about yeah, a leap yeah, of faith, yeah. huh? <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I didn't leave. I, I didn't leave the ground. <laughs> that is for sure. Uh, you know, those those five lessons that you just went went through, Jason, are huge. And I encourage our listeners uh to review these, they'll be in our uh, show notes. And I I want to make sure people see the importance of what you have just met, mentioned about not letting uh, people put limits on you and believing everything that people say, um, you know, and find small improvements, testing yourself, building a strong foundation, and, and the whole issue with fear. You don't need to go through this traumatic experience to practice these things. These are everyday life experiences. I mean, it could be trying out for a new position or a new job or or a new relationship that we we get trapped in our own minds and belief systems. And you uh, have just expressed so beautifully through such a traumatic event how miracles can happen and how you still have a say in, in how you're going to live your life and uh, what a beautiful story. I want to make sure people know how to reach you and, you know, what you're doing. Uh, I know you're doing a lot of uh, motivational speaking. You have a great book. Go ahead and share how people can reach you and what you're looking for. Sure. My uh, website is jasondenon.com, and it's spelled D-E-N-N-E-N. -N -E -N. Um, you can contact me through there. Uh, I wrote a book about it, so not only those five lessons, but lots of other lessons along the way um, from recovering and, and coming back. Um, my book's called Eight Days Till Sunrise, um, and you can find it on my website. I'll, I'm happy to sign it, or you can get it at you know, barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com. Um, also, Instagram on JWD Boulder, spelled B-O-U-L-D-E-R. Um, you can connect with me there. I'd love to hear um, people's stories, and I can help you in any way, so please reach out. Thank you so much. And as we wrap up, is there any last thing or insight you'd like to share with with our audience? I'd say don't give in and don't give up when something gets tough. There's always somebody to tell you what you can't do. Don't listen to them. Find a way to do it. Isn't that great? And I'm curious, what is your next test uh, for you? What are you? What is your next big project or uh, activity you're planning for yourself? Sure. Well, uh, this last weekend, actually, uh, we encountered 60-mile-an-hour winds up on uh, Mount Ypsilon and in the Rocky Mountain National Park and turned us back. So I'm looking to have a, a redo on a climb that uh, I be, uh, that I just did this last weekend. Uh, I also have a triathlon coming up at the end of August in uh, Boulder, Colorado um, to uh, to do that. So I've been swimming and running and, and biking. So those are so those are projects I'm working on right now. Well, Jason, you have totally touched my heart. I'm so happy to see where you're at and, and what you've done and inspired me to, to uh, you know, go beyond. And it's all about living your life the way you want to create it. And you have certainly created your life to its fullest. Thanks so much for your, your insights, and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for having me on. Have an awesome day. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye.
Thank you for joining us today on Vision Beyond Sight. Join Dr. Lynn Hellerstein each week to help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Remember, your vision does not define you. You define your vision. For more information and find additional podcasts, visit lynnhellerstein.com. See you next time on Vision Beyond Sight.